This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Dire is one adjective that Linda Katz, founder and executive director of Children's Literacy Initiative, uses to describe the U.S. education system, which is leaving an increasingly high number of children without adequate reading and writing skills. For more than 20 years, CLI has been working with school systems across the country to overhaul how teachers are trained, hired, and mentored. In an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Katz discusses not only why classroom teaching is broken and what can be done about it, but also the secret to helping kids learn to love reading. Uh, our guest today is Linda Katz, the founder of uh, Children's Literacy Initiative. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, McCall. <laughs> uh, well, uh, uh, I know that CLI uh, uh, works closely with children, and your goal is to close the gap in literacy mm-hmm. between disadvantaged children and their more affluent peers, as Absolutely. your website says. Yes. Uh, can you explain exactly the nature of the problem? Yeah, um, our our business, Children's Literacy, we work with teachers, and that is the nature of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have under-invested in training teachers. We have <clears throat> under-invested in figuring out how to hire good teachers. We've uh, not looked at what kind of a workplace they're in, and we keep coming up with... Uh, what are the wrong solutions to fixing the really huge problems in what is essentially a broken human capital chain. And that's where Children's Literacy Initiative has been. We work with providing professional development for practicing teachers. We're working on what are called pipeline issues of how you get trained to be a teacher. And we try to speak up as much as we can about certification and tenure and other issues that affect this whole uh, uh, really broken chain, and we try above all to make the point that the problems we're facing in this country, which by the way are fairly dire, and uh, just to tell you that it's not me that's saying they're fairly dire, it's um, the United States Army, and they've just um, issued a report saying that um, education in this country has now become an imminent and menacing threat to national security. Can you imagine, uh, that's what he's saying, an imminent and menacing threat. And why do they say that? They say that because um, in the age group 17 to 24, right off the top, 21% of our youth cannot pass the reading test to get into the Army. I'm not talking about the Air Force or the SEALs, I mean the Army. And uh, another 21% have to be wavered in their uh, credentials and uh, ability to pass reading tests isn't, isn't so hot. Well, why is the system broken? The system is broken because uh, we have been blaming teachers and not looked at teaching, if you can make that distinction. Whereas other countries like Finland and Japan have looked very closely at uh, teaching. Uh, in this country, there's a belief that uh, you come in as uh, magical Mary Poppins out of nowhere, and it's all good, or you're not. And uh, either way, there's nothing that can be done, and we haven't recognized that there are standards of practice for instruction, in, not instructors, instruction, that we know how to teach reading. I mean, this country just went through 15, 20 years war between the people who advocated phonics only and the people who advocated uh, comprehension only. Can you imagine 
what mm -hmm. was that all about? You obviously you need both, but we uh, we 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 were just so far apart because um, we, we just don't have have not developed a really good idea of what uh, good practices, effective practices. Um, evidence-based practices look like. I, and it's interesting to me, the medical profession actually is also looking at those kinds of things. Uh, as, as a business school, uh, uh -huh. what would you say is the cost to the U.S. economy of uh, having uh, you know, a, a, an education system that is so riddled with problems? Oh, right. You know, that's interesting. Um, McKinsey, I think, did a study, and they said it was you know billions of dollars. Um, in Philadelphia alone, we, we have hundreds of millions of uh, dollars of lost wages. Uh, you know, before the recession started, we had an underlying, or what you might call structural unemployment, uh, close, closing in on 40%. 40% of the adults in Philadelphia were not looking and were not working. And I'm talking about the people who were able, you know, able, just like uh, able to go into the Army but can't, able physically and um, able, uh, you know, that they weren't home with children or in prison or, or in the army overseas. And, and given that, we had a 40 percent of uh, between 30, 30 and 40 percent underlying, and of course then the recession hit. I mean, can you imagine what this is costing this region? Right. Well, over the years there have been numerous efforts, I'm sure, at uh, school reform. Oh, uh, how, how effective have these been? The tide been? goes in and the tide goes out. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in this biz 22 years, Children's Literacy Initiative. Our statistics are really good. We work with teachers and they do better. And it's always such a puzzle to us of, gee, if you work on instruction with teachers, on reading instruction, we work with pre-K through third grade teachers. If you work intensely, you coach teachers, you uh, teach them uh, very high standards of practice that, gee, the kids will more or less learn how to read if you do that. Um, there are a lot of, um, it's still, we're, when, we looked, when we look at what the reforms have been, they, they always miss the central question of how do we improve the human capital, which, by the way, if you look at any school's budget, it's all in salaries. I mean, that is what you can fix. Right? That is what it is, and we know that there's no reform that can get into a classroom that bypasses teachers and the way they teach. There is none. But we have looked for them everywhere, and uh, we've looked for them um, by maybe like new structures like uh, charter schools and, and, of course, not realizing they're hiring the same teachers. So on average, there are a few stores, but most charter schools don't really do any better. We've looked at um, money. We've said, um, you know, if we just paid teachers more, it, it will, as if um, the teachers who are in the classroom day after day won't teach uh, everything they know how to teach until you give them more money. You know, give me another thousand and I'll really teach kids how to read. I, I, you know, I don't think that's really um, what it is. We've looked at... Um, Longer day, longer year, longer week, keep the kids in school. And all we found out is we end up taking away the social skills that children need uh, and, uh, uh, to get along in this world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, you know, and, we burn, and we burn out teachers, and then you have to be Superman. I mean, teaching is a very demanding and difficult profession, and to do it five, six days a week, um, Eleven months a year is not is not a tenable career choice. We we just keep looking 
at what we think the quote-unquote business solutions are. But business actually has figured this out a long time ago because business, and, and, and I do have an MBA from Wharton, I, I do know that um, business looks at human capital. They look at who works in the, in the firm. And I, I have to say we're always in education rewarding A when we want B. So we reward people to get master's degree degrees when there is no, we know there is not a shred of evidence that that changes the results of kids in the classroom. None. So it might be, we say to teachers, eat yogurt for a year and I'll give you a raise. It's just exactly that trivial, and yet we keep rewarding that. That's how you get a higher salary is by getting your master's. We want A and we reward B, and it's, uh, that's something that we know about in business so not what, to do. What, what, what exactly is the, the gorilla in the room that everyone is ignoring? Uh, that we underinvest in um, training and uh, setting, the, we set the bar too low and then we train too little. And what we're not looking at is um, that we put, we make an actual negative investment in teacher training. And how does that happen? That happens because um, tuition more than covers all the costs of training a teacher. Uh, becoming a teacher has become the quote-unquote cash cow of the university. Let me give you an example. Uh, student teaching, the most important semester, which by the way should be two semesters, the most important part of teacher training is, um, is that time you will spend as a student teacher. And uh, you pay full tuition for that semester, and you work full-time that semester. But this is what it costs the university. It costs them under $500 uh, for the faculty that they send out to supervise you. You can imagine the kind, and that supervisor, by the way, is writing you up. What that comes down to is a deal. You know, you, don't, you give me a good grade, and I won't complain to the university bitterly that I have paid to have a little bit more than $500 worth of expert supervision. Uh, we place students in classrooms with no metrics to decide who is, who, what kind of classrooms they should be placed in. In other words, the classroom you're placed in has what's called a cooperating teacher. So I'm teaching first grade. I have been called a cooperating teacher. That means the university will send me student teachers. Now, how did they decide I was a cooperating teacher? They didn't. I was just there. You know, I mean, mm. very little. They spent very little time investigating it, and they used no metrics. Mm. So they did not look at my, um, my instruction, and they did not look at my outcomes, but they sent me a student teacher. And then they didn't train me. So again, what did you get for your tuition? You got, um, at best, a, a good placement, but nobody really knows for sure. And at worst, you, you just got to, you know, spend some time watching somebody truly horrible uh, and keeping a notebook as one of our uh, coaches told us told me um, she, she kept a notebook of what not to do hmm. so if the universities make a lot of money on that semester and in general a lot of money on uh, teach, teaching and a lot of their faculty is um, adjunct adjunct so of course uh, low um, low cost then the incentive is what? I mean, you don't have to have an MBA to know the incentive is to let everybody who wants to major in, in education major in education. We have set the bar at zero. And um, 
that's not a good place to be for the most, if we think teaching is the answer, it's going to help us. And uh, in recent years there have been you know, various volunteer organizations like CLI or Teach for America that have, uh, right. that, that have non-profit, come, uh, non right. that yeah. have come along. Uh, uh, to what extent has this made a difference to the situation? We're all entrepreneurs, uh, so we've all, and we've all looked at different parts of that human capital chain. Um, we choose to work a children's literacy initiative within the structure of the school district because at the end of the day, that's where 97% of the mm -hmm. students are. And, um, and we've, we've chosen to work with the people who want to be teachers. They've, they've decided that's their career. And so we, um, we while we, we actually do some work for Teach for America and we love, they're great people and many of them stay in education and hallelujah and all of that, we don't think the answer, that human capital answer, is saying that if uh, that Harvard, which I think 25% of their class tried to get into TFA, um, Teach for America, we don't think a lot of those people are going to stay. We think they're always going to have um, higher paid options. I, I, and I don't know that we can really sincerely say we're ever going to be willing to pay our teachers that much money. I think we should be willing to invest in their education. I think we should be willing to invest in their student-teacher placement. I think we should be willing to um, change the hiring and supervision process. And um, so some nonprofits um, are, are looking at that, but a lot of nonprofits think that um, let's just bypass it. Let's just hire people who don't have any any degree at all in education, you know, that that's a curse. And that's just so wrong because um, we didn't try, we, we reformed the medical profession, if you know about it, in the 1900s. <clears throat> and um, there was a Flexner study that closed most of the medical schools. They required internships and had to have a certified teaching house, blah, 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 all the same things actually that we need to do. But they didn't say you didn't need to go to medical school. <laughs> But now we're saying, you know what? You know, let's 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 look outside. And and yet the latest study I just saw said that if um, you majored in math, it didn't make any difference to how well your kids did in math. Hmm. So it isn't really um, so much that we want to go outside the profession. We want the schools of ed to stop taking everybody, diluting the quality of the faculty, and start making it a money loser. Mm -hmm. We want them to change the student teaching experience. And then we want the schools to be honest about how they hire and grant tenure. And uh, by the way, I'm not opposed to tenure. I, I think teachers are too much at the whim of um, angry parents, vocal parents, or uh, politicians who could use the uh, position for their brother-in-law's, sister-in-law's niece, you know. So I, I, I just, I think tenure's good. I, I mean, I think it, it, it just has to be changed the way we do it. But we have to be honest. I mean, uh, there's just an article in the LA Times that said uh, only 2% of the newbies, of the new teachers, the uh, first-year teachers, did not get tenure, did not get mm. 2%. Now, you remember that when you get tenure, you're essentially hired for life. Mm. And if you were a corporation and you knew you were hiring somebody for life, your interview process would really perk up, and you would have some real metrics of who got tenure.
-hmm. and, and you might review it every five or ten years. But it, and they'd be fair metrics that, that the people who were being evaluated, they would be specific and fair. And we just, we won't do it. We just can't do it, don't, don't seem to get ourselves together to do it. And it's easier to blame teachers that um, somehow they're gaming the system constantly. And then, of course, some, and some of them are. But, mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't really created a system, so it's just so easy to, to do that. You walk in, you, you, you had no barrier to entry to major in education. Nobody looked at you in student teaching and said, no, not going to make it. Then you got hired, uh, and and you got tenure. But you got hired in the process of hiring. Nobody looked at you for more than like an hour or something. They didn't. They didn't evaluate your um, actual instruction. They didn't. I can't imagine what a business. I can't imagine what GE would do if they thought they were hiring anybody for life. <laughs> I can't even imagine sure. what that interview. I mean, you'd probably have to go live with somebody, and they'd probably have to observe how you brush your teeth and uh, on up, right? <laughs> I mean, it would it would be it would be astounding what we would how much we would care, but we don't, we just don't take it all that seriously. And then teachers are there for life, and um, uh, the only ones that leave that leave because it's such a, a horrible working condition. The working conditions of being a teacher are How so? from bad to horrible. How so? Uh, first, there's a physical plant of our cities. You know, the overheated rooms and the old buildings and not enough books and not, not the right materials and, and uh, too many kids per class and the kids have too many problems for the ratio. So in that sense, it's, it's kind of, there could be a lot of uh, physical conditions that make it horrible. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in the suburbs where it's not so horrible, they're starting to feel the pressure of No Child Left Behind of the testing culture and where their um, intellectual work is not valued and they have, and teachers have very little say. They're almost um, like Charlie Chaplin in The Machine, uh, if you remember Modern Times, the movie. They don't really have a whole bunch of say about what gets taught and when it gets taught. The expertise is not valued. And so the, the curriculum always comes down from on high, and it's very prescribed, and more so and more so every day because of the uh, testing mania and culture. Not that um, if somebody were doing a good job on instruction, the kids actually would do pretty well on the tests, but that's mm -hmm. another... But not when the pressure is on and you're, and, and you're being... Um, second, more than second guest. You're just a cog in the wheel. So I would say it, it's a fairly dire working condition. You don't get to work with your colleagues very much. Um, and people from the outside who have absolutely no understanding, never been in a class and never done anything, the uh, opinion leaders and policymakers generally come from outside the field, not even, you know, just... You know, they, they really have no experience. They don't know what you're talking about. Not to mention, how many college graduates work in buildings that aren't air-conditioned and have to bring their own pencils? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, there, there are other issues. Uh, uh, and the pay is not great. Right. Now, could, could you tell a little bit about uh, how uh, CLI has been trying to address these issues and w yes, what specific it, steps you've been taking? Yes, um, we've created um, what are called model classrooms. So we will go into a school and we'll see a teacher who has good classroom management, is kind to the children, and has a good work ethic who really wants to um, 
you know, be the teacher they thought they were going to be, even though nobody has provided the professional development and the colleges haven't provided very good coursework and they didn't get very good mentoring. But they, they have a vision of the teacher they want to be. And we work with those teachers to bring them to uh, a state of excellence, of high proficiency in um, how to instruct in reading, how to instruct in writing, how to organize their time, how to organize their space, and, and generally how to create rigor in, the, um, in their lessons. And we work with them kind of intensively. And then that model classroom teacher may have two or three grade level colleagues. Um, if they're, let's say, the first grade model classroom teacher has two or three colleagues. We try to get the uh, model classroom teacher to become what is called a grade level leader and bring together the colleagues where they actually look at what they're doing and try to get better together. And we help that process along. And so it's. It, it helped, we, we've seen definite uh, raised reading scores, and in fact, right now, one of the metrics that was developed by uh, the center here at Pen University of Pennsylvania Center for High Impact Philanthropy that was actually created by some Wharton graduates, um, uh, they said the difference between child reading on grade level and not using our intervention with the teacher was basically $600 a child. And if it was your child, would you pay six hundred dollars to have them read on grade level rather than not? It's mm -hmm. it's actually inexpensive, so uh, or trivial, you might even say. Um, and the Center for High Impact Philanthropy was therefore encouraging people to give us million dollar gifts. Mm -hmm. But we were we were uh, so we used the money to create the model classrooms to create. Uh, learning communities, to have a, not the blind leading the blind, but having an actual expert instructor at the helm who is in the school every day and setting the bar for if this is what my kids can do, listen, next door you've got the same kids, so your kids can do it too. It's not the threat of uh, the state testing and we're going to come and get you. So, um, And we equip the teacher with a lot of books and we help them set up their rooms and and we, we work with them coaching one-on-one -on -one right in the classroom. And then now we, we're starting a new project where we're going to use those model classroom teachers in what is called a pipeline. We're going to use them for student teaching. So we're, we, we're right now in Philadelphia. We have 60 model classrooms. We're going to place eight student teachers we have, actually, in eight of our model classroom teachers. But unlike the um, universities, we're paying somebody to coach them. Um, a non-trivial amount of hours, 30 or so, and we're also actually training who is called the cooperating teacher so that when the student teacher comes in, the uh, teacher of the classroom, the designated teacher, doesn't just see somebody coming down the hall who's going to take care of lunch and take the kids to the bathroom. They actually see somebody whose lessons they're going to plan with, who they're going to observe, who they're going to critique. But they needed training to be able to do that. And I have to say, every time we've done this with model classrooms and the colleagues and the grade level leaders, the teachers are so excited. They want to do this work. We don't have to go to get Harvard MBAs to come in and send them ride to the rescue. The people who are there are wonderful. They are wonderful. They're public servants. And they want to do the work. We just have to make sure that they can. And how, how, many teachers of, a year, how many teachers a year do you train in this way? Well, um, if you take the model classrooms and then the colleagues, it, you know, it's 
you know, it could be anywhere from 500 to 1,000 uh, teachers that we work with. We're in several big cities, um, uh, Philadelphia, Newark, uh, Boston, um, a little bit in D.C., we've, we've Chicago, Atlanta. So we, we've done work in, in, uh, for a lot of... Uh, 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 you, you said earlier that you had started this uh, 22 years ago. I did. What inspired you to do what uh, you're doing? Yeah, Nicole. You know what? My mother read to me. <laughs> and uh, I love reading. And um, I, I was, you know, the first generation to go to college, that kind of story. Everybody knows, you know, the, the father who dropped out of high school and the mother who had, uh, a, you know, a high school degree that stayed at home. And um, so the fact is, my going to the University of Pennsylvania was actually an astonishment. I went to a very blue-collar, working-class high school, Medford High School, and uh, in Massachusetts, and and it was, it was just an amazing thing to me. And I always think it was because my—I always thought—and that it was because my mother read to me when I was little, and uh, I wanted—I wanted that to happen for all kids, and. Uh, Getting into, so I started children's literacy, and our, our initial thing was let's get some good books to parents, and then we realized no, let's get these good books to teachers and show them what to do with it. You have much more control that way. Uh, I'm not trying to change the parenting of America, but I can change the teaching practices of kindergarten, first and second grade teachers. And um, as I started it, the the uh, I got deeply into the research of why I felt that way about reading to being read to is so important and found out, oh my God, all the science for a hundred years is behind this. This is why I did get to Penn. There's no question about it. And what it is that you give to your kids when you read to them is a higher order of vocabulary because written vocabulary is of a vastly um, higher level than spoken vocabulary. So... Um, if you read to your children, particularly if you try for the kind of good books that you can get from public libraries, you're giving your child the gift of vocabulary, which is just absolutely the same as IQ. And that's what will help them achieve and do well in school. So, um, do, do you feel that, that um, technology and peer pressure sometimes militates against reading as, a, uh, as, as an activity for the young? Well, <clears throat> that's part of this crisis that the Army was talking about. Young people don't read for pleasure. And um, we're kind of trying to figure it out and what that's going to do to the next generation. Uh, and I, I think, though, that reading, when it's taught poorly, uh, becomes very a very difficult thing to do. So, uh, Nicole, if I gave you a book and you didn't know five words out of every hundred. Actually, in school, that's considered your instructional level, and that's where I would start teaching you in a book that you couldn't understand five words out of every hundred. But if you're, as an adult, if I gave it to you, you'd, you'd just put that book down, probably down in the trash, actually. Uh, we, 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 as, an, as a leisure activity, we will not read books that we don't know five words out of a hundred. And our kids do not because of the instruction. And, um, and and they get very little guidance in how to find a book that they actually will read, uh, knowing, let's say, um, you know, 98 words out of 100 so that it becomes a pleasurable experience. And, and, and 
and then build up by reading, reading, reading. So, you know, I think if we changed our, uh, if the, and again, the schools and the school teachers need to learn how to level those books and how to match children um, to the to their level, because uh, uh, right now we are in high school. We'll give everybody the same textbook. And it will only be the reading level of a few of the children in the classroom. So what is the point? What are you proving? You've done nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, do you focus on children just up to a certain age, or, or do you feel that uh, intervening even later on uh, is, is, uh, can be effective? Um, so what does it say on the walk coming here? The Benjamin Franklin, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. <laughs> um, we stop at third grade because a child who's reading, a confident reader, reading on grade level at third grade is far more likely to make it through. Uh, and the intervention, what happens if a child actually doesn't learn how to read uh, on grade level by the end of first grade, there's only a 10% chance that child will ever read on grade level. And I'm not just talking about urban children or it's suburban, it's just kids in America. And um, once, once you fall off the reading wagon, to put you back on takes a lot more skill and time than the average teacher has. And I'm not saying it can't be done, because it actually can be done, but um, it's, a, it's a huge investment of time. And uh, when you look at kids, 40% of kids will learn how to read fairly easily. Um, another 40 really need expert instruction. And then the last 20 are varying degrees of struggling readers. Only somehow we've managed to turn 60%. That, that, would, that would almost occur in nature if we were providing you know, reasonable instruction. But we've turned about 60% of our kids into struggling readers. So big surprise that they'd rather watch television. You're not, you don't do something that you struggle at that doesn't seem like it's going to yield to uh, improve it. Apart from literacy, do you also feel that uh, numeracy is important and, say, uh, skills like music? Uh, oh, do you focus on those uh, at all? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, La Sistema in Venezuela, where all the children get an instrument or they're in a chorus, every single one, in poorest neighborhoods. And, uh, of course, the crowning achievement just came last year with... Um, uh, Gustavo Dudamel, who came from La Sistema, is now a 28-year-old head of the Los Angeles Symphony. Yes, music's important, and we know it extends IQ and, and all of that, but it's hugely important. And, and some children will have talent, will be the Gustavo Dudamels, and if we don't give them music lessons, how will we ever know? And um, uh, numeracy, of course, is important. Math is very different than reading. Math is almost all instruction. I just told you with reading, if you read a lot to your kid and, and they have the right building blocks and, and, and kind of a minimally okay instruction, they'll learn how to read. That, in fact, that accounts for most of the suburban kids, um, the kids from upper middle income. And it isn't because they're getting the most fantastically better instruction. It's just they've got all the pieces in place from their family. And, and, and not to say that people of lower income can't put all those pieces into place, but it's harder. It's, it's more of a, a challenge. There's not a bookstore in sight, and you don't have role models and blah, blah, blah. But um, we need to... It, it's just a different problem with numeracy, and of course, numeracy is hugely important. Um, 
but numeracy yields to really good instruction again, and and maybe maybe just as importantly as the reading instruction, you have to go through all those human capital steps I talked to with making sure our teachers are trained in teaching math. Uh, what's your uh, vision for what you'd like to achieve with uh, the CLI? Ah, yes, cool. I'd like CLI to be out of business. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I want kids to learn how to read and feel good about it and achieve and do everything they can do in school and become, you know, and I want the teachers to have great careers where they're teaching us, not us teaching them about uh, what is good instruction. So, um, believe it or not, I think we could get there in a generation. We turned, uh, although one of the, our problems is we want to get there in a year. So, therefore, we have these, uh, like I said, all the wrong solutions coming down because they, they sometimes they give a quick bump and, of course, they go away. But um, we, we reform the medical profession, and it is an exact um, uh, similar situation uh, the president of Harvard in 19, I don't know, the 18, late 1800s said he actually shuddered to think of anybody going to a doctor who was trained at Harvard. That's his words, President Eliot of Harvard. But then we had Johns Hopkins, which showed a new way to train doctors. And then uh, we had this wonderful Carnegie study that said not only is this the new way to train doctors, but you will train doctors this way. This will be the only way we train doctors. And lo and behold, we have a fairly uh, well-respected medical profession, not just um, in this country, but internationally. We are highly respected as a medical profession. And we did it. And um, it took some investment on the medical college end and the, and the internship training end. But we got there. And raising the bar of who could become a doctor. But we got there. We got there. I want to get there. Linda, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you, Nicholas. It's been a pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.upenn.edu.